my grandmother's E-type just stopped me and I was a little girl and I was like, what is that? And I've just been in love with the car ever since. The history of the E-type, we value what it was and we want to be part of retaining that and for us, we believe that's integral to the car. Jeremy Clarkson was walking around the speedster doing a piece to camera. That's when he said those uh, words. He said, I think this is the most beautiful car that I've ever seen. And then he said, I think this is the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen. The Chubb Interviews with Jodie Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Chubb Interviews. I'm Jodie Kidd. A rather belated Happy New Year to everyone, as this is our first podcast of 2021. I really hope you're all okay during these strange and cold and wet winter months. If you hadn't had a chance to listen to all the Chubb interviews, why not check out all our episodes? We've had some fabulous conversations during the series. So time to introduce our guests. Normally on this podcast, we celebrate a personality. But this month, we decided it's time to celebrate a car. But this isn't just any car. This is the Jaguar E-Type. And this year, it celebrates the 60th anniversary of its launch. To help us tell the story of one of the most iconic cars of all time, we've brought together two guys who probably know more about this incredible car than anyone else. They run two of the UK's foremost E-Type specialist businesses. We've got Marcus Holland of E-Type UK and Paul Brace of Eagle. Between the two guests, we'll have the E-Type story well and truly covered from 1961 all the way up to 2021. In fact, it's probably a pretty rare occasion when you get two competitors to chat together about their lifelong passion. So I'm really looking forward to this. So hi, Marcus. Hi, Paul. How are you? Hello. Yeah, very well. Yeah, hello. Very well, thanks. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, as it is a really special year for the E-Type, I've got a few questions I can't wait to throw to you. OK, so let's start with you, Paul. Could you tell me a little bit more about Eagle and your passion for this business? Yes, yeah, certainly. Eagle has been around now since 1984, so that's 37 years. That's an awful long time to be a specialist. The company was founded by Henry Pierman, and he's still in the driving seat today. He's still in the company. He's still just as passionate now as he was when he was a young kid. And he, he tells stories about when he used to go on family holidays to the coast. And the highlight for a young Henry Pierman was to actually see an E-Type Jaguar, which was parked somewhere en route. And that was the highlight of his trip. Once he'd seen the E-Type Jaguar parked at the side of the road, the holiday was done for him and it was, uh, you know, he was quite happy to go home again. So he's loved them all his life and that's what started the business. That's what got it all going and that's what steered us uh, and put the focus on E-Types. Uh, it staggers me to think about it now, but 32 years ago I joined him. So I've actually spent the majority of my life <laughs> working around E-Types um, and I see them every day. They still set, put a little flutter when I see them now. And I still find them just as stunning as I did the very first time. I mean, that's why we're all here. And that's probably why you've had, you know, a really successful business for so many years. And why we're all talking about it. It's just the most beautiful car. And Marcus, so how did you end up running E-Type UK? A slightly different story to the Eagle story and, and, and to Paul's story. 
not to age Paul in any uh, in any way. <laughs> when he joined Eagle was 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 potentially around the time I was born. So there's kind of slightly different stories, I guess, between us. Um, yeah, I mean, Eat Up UK is is essentially for a kind of family run business. It's myself and my father um, that run it, and um, unfortunately, uh, I get to steal all the limelight. But it really came about through kind of fortuitous circumstances for us. Um, essentially, Dad was retired. I was working um, up in London at the time, and Dad wanted to buy a classic car. I liked tinkering around with cars. Admittedly, nothing as valuable as an E-Type. Dad always spoken about wanting an E-Type or potentially an Austin Healey, something along those kind of lines. And I wanted to get involved in the classic car market. I, I love classic cars. I like going to shows and, and going to Goodwood and those, those kind of big ticket events, I guess, nowadays. Um, and yeah, it was really during the research phase that we found that E-Type UK was up for sale at the time. Um, we went and met at E-Type's Kent's premises in the weekend, actually, of Goodwood Revival, funnily enough. And uh Fast forward three months later, we were in running it in January 2016 and um, haven't looked back since. Most people that come on to the podcast, we sit down. My first question is, you know, what was that moment that you got into cars? You know, what was that special little memory? Was it as a kid? And, you know, for actually me, it was seeing my grandmother's E-Type and she had one. It just stopped me and I was a little girl and I was like, what is that? And I've just been in love with the car ever since. I have to say on more than one occasion, it's been the same thing with so many people that it's been that one special moment of getting into cars has been because they've either seen or driven or sat in an E-Type. What's so special about it? It's hard to pinpoint it. I've still got incredible memories of the car. I mean, by amazing coincidence, uh, considering what I'm doing with my life now, when I was a kid, my first and only pedal car was actually an E-Type Jag, which was quite amazing. I, I would so love to have that now. But sadly, I can't even find a photograph of it. When I did become aware of cars, which was at quite an early age, the E-Type always was just one of the greatest and the coolest things. George Best used to drive around in an E-Type. You know, it was the coolest of the cool. Just look at the thing. It's just got such a dramatic and amazing shape. Even now it looks incredible, but when you look back at photographs of other cars that were on the streets uh, in the 60s, I mean, when I look at films now that are based in the 60s and, and you look at how different those cars were and how comparatively dull they were the e-type must have actually looked like a spaceship driving around on the road and that's what did it i think i'm sure we've got some listeners that were around for the launch but for those that weren't what was it like was it a huge moment do you know i wouldn't actually be surprised if that car launch had more impact than any other launch it wouldn't surprise me really you think it was it was like one of the biggest launches of that era I think it must have been. And, you know, we, we, we have customers that are, that are all ages. We've got young customers and some that were around when the car was launched. And it's brilliant listening to those. You know, I'm always fascinated by the, the, the guys that were around when it was launched. And they talk about it with such passion. And, and it's as if their eyes are lighting up when they're talking about, you know, the first time they saw an E-Type and when it was launched and the effect that it had on them. And equally, I'm always interested to talk to the younger guys. We do sometimes get guys in their 20s. How do those guys know about the E-Type? Why is the E-Type a car that driving them to spend... You know, these cars are a lot of money now. They spend an awful lot of money in a car that, you know, how does it mean anything to them? But they love it too. So what other car could have had that effect? I don't think there is another one. There were some amazing stories around the E-Types launch. We were really lucky to have David Gandhi on the podcast last year. And he talked about the moment that Norman Dewis 
he played quite a key role in the Geneva launch, didn't he? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Norman Jewis, I think the uh, E-Type and, and Geneva are, are synonymous with each other now. And he passed away in 2019, is no longer around to tell the story. And I'm sure he'd do it better than, uh, justice than I could. Um, the story is... Jaguar folklore and, and legendary and, and Norman Jewish himself is revered and admired amongst uh, Jaguar circles and and, and and broader than that, absolutely. I mean, the story goes that he was off uh, testing in the morning and then got approached by the track manager and told that Jaguar wanted to see him back in Coventry and he headed back across. And he got told that due to you know high demand of people wanting to test drive the E-Type, he, uh, he had to get over to Geneva uh, as soon as possible and... He thought that he would have enough time to kind of grab something to eat and and some clothes. And little did he know that they'd already sent someone around to his uh, wife to pick up a bag for him to head over to Geneva. And apparently averaging, you know, 68 miles per hour, covering it in 11 or so hours. I think even by today's standards, that would be quite a feat to undertake. Very impressive. Yeah. And all of that in, in what people commonly associate now with cars from the 60s which are inherently unreliable and and you wouldn't possibly dare take that journey on but you know you you forget quite quickly that even then you know the cars were were extremely reliable when he was actually there with time to spare I just love that story I think that's just fantastic and it kind of like takes you to that era and all the memories of, you know, of the first time I, I heard about, you know, the 250s, the Ferraris that when, you know, they used to literally be like gentlemen's cars that used to drive to work in. And then on the weekend, they'll drive the car to the racetrack, then they would race the car all weekend and then drive back home and off to work in the morning. It's such a lovely era for cars, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's absolutely, it's uh, it's a thing that everyone aspires to. I think when you buy into a classic car, you really picture those kind of scenarios and, uh and it's those stories that make classic car ownership so enjoyable is, is you buy into almost that culture and that way of thinking and and, and approaching things. And, um, you know, it's a very different time nowadays where you'd obviously, if you go to Geneva now and look at the modern launches, concept cars, and they're bought on the back of trailers, is those stories just die out in terms of the journeys that make them. I mean, most of them don't even have engines in some of these concepts. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Well, certainly, certainly the E-Type wasn't a victim to that. I think the engine was uh, was probably well yeah. used by the time we got to Geneva. Yeah, very well worn in. OK, so the E-Type is out there, 1961. With most cars, the early examples are really, really sought after. It's pretty much the same with anything that's collectible. It's, it would normally be the, the very first and, and, and sometimes the very last that is the most collectible. And with E-Types, the very last ones, they did a run of 50 commemorative V12s. They are collectible and they're valuable, but they're not as desirable as the first ones. With E-Types, it is very, very much the first ones that are worth all the money. And I think it's just because that's a thing with collectors, because they're not actually the best cars. They're not the nicest cars to drive. There's quite a few quirks on those early cars. An archaic gearbox, the Moss gearbox, is, is not such a pleasure to use. Um, lots of people will say that's all part of the character. But to be honest, that's fine. But me personally, I, th I think it's too antiquated to suit the car. It's a lovely, modern-looking sports car, relatively speaking. And I don't think it needs that crunchy old gearbox. The brakes were lacking. Um, and they're just generally not such a nice car to drive. 
if you're having a conversation with somebody and uh, any types come into that conversation and if they know even the slightest thing about it it won't be long before they're mentioning flat floors and outside bonnet locks it's, it's just something that people will drop into a conversation to kind of show that they know about e-types that's made it even more legendary thing that they are so amazing but um yeah they're not the best cars but i think they're collectible because they're the first ones and do you think a lot of these first ones would be just treasured and not really driven about because they weren't the easiest well exactly that because it doesn't matter the fact that they're not the nicest ones to drive in in standard form because they will mostly be in collections now sadly i mean they're still fun to drive i i still like driving a an early car on cross plies and with a moss box it's a bit of a challenge but i, I must say if i had to pick one e-type that that's not the one that i'd pick to actually use <laughs> yeah i bet um marcus presumably there were all sorts of little changes like that that went through the life of any type from all the different series and being a restorer that must be an absolute pain so I know that you restored a very early car last year so what were the little things that you had to look out for? Any restorer I think comes up against the same challenges and the e-type is for a lot of people it's it's a strange concept when you say to somebody that you know there weren't records for every single component that was put on a car and there weren't records for every single color and and finish that was applied to the car so when you start saying to people that um there is a lot of conjecture and uh uncertainty and and, and opinions around various different parts of what was original to this year of car against that year of car actually funny enough it was just the other day that we sold the car on behalf of the owner that we restored the early car and and you start going through the history and then you start bringing up all of these conversations that you were having. And one of the things um, came to light as maybe a slightly depressing story, um, but uh, also still maybe a funny one at the same time is we were going through and we started looking at all of the colours of duck egg grey that we painted for various component parts. And you kind of pull it out and there's about 20 different colours of duck egg grey that we painted in different styles and different colours. Um, and at different pressures to try and match a grainy old picture that existed on the file to make sure we got the exact colour right. And at the end of it, one of the guys walked in and went, oh, well, that was the right colour there, wasn't it? And actually it turned out to be the wrong colour to the one that we ended up painting in. So even despite the fact that we'd done it, is he still couldn't identify the colour that we settled on for duck egg grey that would match the same colour. So it's those quirky little bits and pieces. But what I would say is, and I'm sure... Um, Paul has probably experienced the same things is, um, you know, a lot of people can get 70, 80 percent of cars right and, and they can get it there. But it's the final 10, 15, 20 percent where it really begins to tell in a restoration on the quality and on the research and on where you put the time and effort in and making sure that you use the right nuts and bolts and uh, and you finish with the right tags and you know you have short breathers and different steering columns and different wiper motors and all of those uh, little bits and pieces the bits that don't instantly catch your eye but when you start looking and you start going okay that's all there is that's what really rings true um, to true enthusiasts. And as Paul says, you know, a lot of these cars do sit in collections nowadays and they sit with very knowledgeable people that don't necessarily intend on driving them. That must be a really also a very kind of hard thing is when you're trying to judge a colour from a photograph from the 60s as well. I mean, you know, they didn't have the old kind of digital cameras that we have now as well. But there's quite a few colour changes that weren't quite right over the years have happened. Absolutely. And then, you know, the knowledge changes and there's new pieces of research that comes out. And suddenly the things you spent, you know, the best part of 
three weeks deciding somebody goes well actually that's been disproved now and now this is this is the route and you kind of go oh no back to the drawing board change that you do find yourself working off grainy pictures and cars which have been you know sat in a barn and have only materialized very recently but they've been sat in for 20 30 years they come out and they're clearly unrestored and then you start using those as points of reference to go okay that's how that is now well how old have that been when it was fresh out of the factory based on what it looks like now and you try and almost work backwards from what exists today and you're using those as points of reference on on very early cars. Are you still finding barn finds or do you find that people have obviously clocked onto this and there's less and less out there? I would say that nowadays there are less and less true barn finds out there and they are becoming rarer they still exist um a lot of them exist within estates elderly estates and they've kind of been parked up because of damage or or they've been a kind of a family heirloom that has existed there and then they materialize from there but certainly i think in our experience now the idea that rust free examples which you can kind of just uh tidy up are becoming harder and harder to come by um, a lot of them now need a lot more work and, and and are a lot more involved from a restoration standpoint and so the idea that you know you can buy a car and kind of um, for restoration and it won't need a, a reasonable amount of metal work obviously on an e-type the construction of it you don't want to be in a crash in a, in a rusty e-type because it will just completely fold up on itself Oh, my goodness. No, no. Horrible thought. Right. So let's move that aside. So the series one, it ran for it was a good seven years, wasn't it? Until about 1968. And then things got a little bit hazy towards the end as they kind of half transitioned, didn't they, into the series two. And there were quite a few changes that happened at this point. So, Paul, can you tell me a little bit more about those changes and how difficult it is to kind of pinpoint exactly at the end of that period whether that was one or two or or like the mishmash that was going on yeah the confusion is is the cars that have more recently become known as the series one and a half which is that as you say that transitional period between series one and series two jaguar had to do the series two the variations on the series two to comply with the forthcoming american safety legislation so by 1968, they'd had to move the bumpers and the headlights up slightly. They'd had to get rid of anything remotely sharp on the inside. So the lovely toggle switches had to go uh, in favour of the rocker switches. And, you know, hood catches grew a big lump. The lovely little delicate hood catches of the early cars just got a little bit lumpy um, to make them safer in a collision. So it was all safety legislation. By moving the bumpers up, they had to move the lovely little more delicate side lights down underneath the bumper. All done because of that. Is that because that they were just conforming to the US market? Yeah, the biggest chunk of the market was America. We were not the priority. Yeah, we all got dragged along. We did indeed, we got dragged along. So that's what happened there. And, and it appears that in 1967, it was as if they were introducing the parts as they went through the year. I mean, we've seen a lot of series, so-called series one and a half cars. And I don't think we've ever seen, and Marcus have confirmed the same thing, I don't think we've ever seen two the same. They're all... Some of them, the door mechanisms have changed and the dash panel and other ones have got the American impact kind of collapsible steering column and some haven't. And the alterations on the Series 2 are less favoured than the Series 1 cars. Um, and it's a pity because the Series 2 cars are still absolutely beautiful. And if you if you see one in its own light, it's gorgeous. Stand it next to a Series 1, that's when you notice the differences. Going back to that, saying about how the Series 1 3.8s, which the very early cars are worth 
the, uh, the most money. They're the most collectible. A nice Series 2, if, if you've got a standard Series 1, 3.8, and a, and a standard Series 2, the Series 2 is such a lovely car to drive. They've got nicer gear ratios, and they just seem to be so much more pleasant to drive. Right, we've done Series 1, Series 2, and then I suppose the biggest change came in 71 when they bought in the Series 3. And so we go from that lovely, gorgeous six-cylinder engine to a whopping great V12. I mean, this must have made the car completely different. I mean, Marcus, you must have like driven, very, very luckily, driven most of them. How different character is that big V12 to all the others? Yeah, absolutely. I think the V12... In what I would describe it to someone is when you come in and if we often get an inquiry where people are very unsure which car they want because as you say you know not everyone has had the pleasure of driving all of them and then being able to kind of compare all of them so they look and go well I'm not sure if I want a V12 or, or a Series 1 I prefer the aesthetics of a Series 1 but I prefer the options that are, are available on a on a Series 3 and to a degree what I would say to somebody is you know on a Series 3 you almost need to remove yourself from the thought of it being an E-type Um to a degree, it's it's kind of aesthetically, it's not a massive leap, but certainly I would say a Series 1 is very much a sports car um, and, and, and appears like one and drives like one. Um, and a Series 3, I would describe more as a Grand Tourer. It's softer, there's a bit more space, it's wider, it's longer. Um, and in terms of you know the finish, they are they are different on the on the interior as well. I mean, we can't forget that by this time, you know, British Leyland were involved, and uh, and so things had changed. And um, certainly, the Series Three E Type um, had evolved into a very different car. It doesn't have the same grounding in in race as the Series One car did. And even though people did race the Series Three, so it is a it is a very different car. There's no question about that, but. It has a lot of positives in its own right, and as you said, has already has already been touched on, is the US market was such a big influence on on cars in that period, and then the V12 was absolutely uh, one of the cars that was influenced by that as well. Yeah, they would love it out there. Yeah, completely. It was a uh, you know big V12 engine. Um, you know, it's uh, not quite like American cars that don't necessarily have big engines, but don't always have the performance. The V12, you know, you can unleash a lot of performance out of it. Um, but it's certainly uh, catered to the US market nicely at the time. Paul, I want to come back to you. So we've kind of gone through the different series, but we haven't really spoken about what I call the special cars. So we've got the lightweights, the low drags, the Group 44 racers. Can you let us know that people that might not understand what that means, can you explain a little bit? Yeah, certainly. You're basically describing the race cars. Jaguar didn't really do an awful lot uh, at the factory. The standard E-types, they were raced by privateers. So basically those cars were very much road cars with really minor tweaks. So there was a limit to how successful they could be. Uh, And frustratingly, Jaguar had actually developed, put some effort into a race car, and then actually built uh, a low drag coupe, which is um, as as if the the standard E-type coupe isn't uh, a lovely, slippery enough shape uh, as it is, even standard. They made it even more slippery, and they made this beautiful flowing coupe. But it, you know, some rules and regulation changed somewhere down the line, and it actually never never did anything it just sat in the back of the race shop and didn't get used which was which was a terrible shame i understand that they kind of just dropped the the race program there for a while so the privateers were racing the cars and doing reasonably well but they never set the world on fire and then jaguar did start to develop the car they developed it quite seriously they actually made some aluminium roadsters made them with aluminium engine blocks instead of steel so they were much lighter 
five-speed gearboxes, fuel injection, completely different cylinder heads. And they really did do a proper development of the E-Type, which became known as the lightweights. And they're the ones that have got the vented hardtop uh, with vents in them. Um, and they're quite distinctive. Uh, and the whole bodies, in actual fact, were made of aluminium. So they were um, considerably lighter. Um, but unfortunately, they dragged this lot out in 1963, and they were a little bit late to the party. So by then, you know, if they'd done this in 61, who knows what could have happened. But they, they weren't a, a flop or a failure or anything, but they didn't win as much as they perhaps should have done. And those cars now, when you see pictures of 250 Ferraris and lightweight E-types sliding around the corners world to world, they're probably the most evocative images you could ever think of in the classic car world. I mean, it, it doesn't get better than that. And, th- and those cars, they only made a dozen of them, and those cars have just become so so desirable and so valuable. We restored a fabulous example, 86PJ, which was raced by Roy Salvadori, and we restored that well over 10 years ago now, and I've got a feeling that even back near then changed hands for £4 million or something like that. So interestingly, they only built a dozen of them, which uh, got snapped up by various race teams, Briggs, Cunningham, etc., and they had a particularly good customer, Dick Prothero. He wanted one. I believe that he wanted one of the... Uh, aluminium lightweights because he was already racing steel cars and they didn't have any they didn't have any left but they uncovered this old dusty old wreck in the back of the race shop and said well you can have this one if you like which turned out to be their original low drag coupe and that's become one of the most famous and desirable e-types of all do we know where that is uh, yeah, well, it, it, it's all still around. It's it's very it's it's very well known and documented, and probably you know that, that that's one of the most famous D types of all time. So, um, and it's it, it's still out and about. It's it's in the US or it's here. It's it's a UK. Uh, no, it's over here, and uh, yeah, and 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 it's one that you will have seen at Goodwood. But that's the original. So that's the original Lodre Coupe. A couple of the actual lightweight e-types a couple of the dozen e-types that jaguar made as lightweights they were later converted to um, low drags as well so they instead of just having the conventional shaped hard top with a vent they had the streamlined roof so in actual fact there are three of those i love that shape it's just so gorgeous absolutely lovely and everybody that sees the low drag shaped cars absolutely love them um and they were they were obviously the guys in america were racing them as well i don't know much about group 44 i know it was bob julius and you know he developed the e-type i think it was a bit later than that i think he did most of his stuff on the v12s over there not an amazing race history but they've got a race history but I just think that, you know, it's so special having one of the most beautiful cars ever designed, you know, that it does have its racing sister and, you know, it might not necessarily have to win everything, but it's just, it's so beautiful. And to know that it's got this, you know, this raw form is great. Yeah, exactly that. It, it did well enough that, um, you know, it, it, it didn't do bad. Yeah, yeah. So, guys, I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing. So most people think, you know, the series three was the kind of the end of the e-type but it isn't and both of your businesses are keeping these cars on the road and you know and being used uh you can restore these cars to perfection but marcus can you tell me a little bit because you can also add a few upgrades along the way can't you yeah, absolutely. We've uh, we kind of spoke about restoring early cars earlier, but early cars don't suit, as Paul spoke about, and there are a lot of quirks in relation to those early cars that don't suit everyone. And so, you know, there are a lot of upgrades that you can apply. And I think um, 
the list is endless in terms of if it can be to a, a modern car, largely now there is someone somewhere that is working to get it onto a classic car in some form. Um, you know, a lot of people, you begin to see kind of cruise control being applied to classic cars, um, fuel injection, you know, a lot of electronic upgrades, electronic ignition, um, air conditioning, all of the kind of things that make cars comfortable, central locking, electric windows. People are no longer used to lying under cars any, anymore and, and, and having to tinker and fix them. And certainly uh, my dad recounts stories when he was younger and used to go and visit his uh, grandparents up in Manchester and he lived down in Southampton. And he would say that by Oxford's, they would have broken down at least once. Modern drivers or modern buyers nowadays don't want that experience and very much want modern upgrades and things that will increase reliability. I mean, how far can you go? Because we're kind of like in a world where everything is just computerised in cars. How how far can you take the E-Type to modern day kind of spec'd cars? You do get people that want to push things as far as, as you possibly can. And I think part of it just depends on your perception and where you stand as a business. Certainly for us, um, there are certain areas that we we don't want to go to and, 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 you know, we don't want to kind of push into, so to speak, um, you know, we've been asked about kind of fitting, you know, Corvette engines or a kind of crate engine into oh, an E-type. Blasphemy. And, yeah. And blasphemy. Modern <laughs> gearboxes. But for us, it's just a level where we kind of look at it and go, yes, I'm sure it can be achieved and I'm sure someone somewhere can undertake that. But for us, as you say, you know, blasphemy is, is, is what springs to mind. And so you kind of, I think that, the possibilities are endless and you can go to fitting, you know, brand new crate engine. And um, obviously, you know, we've seen that Jaguar have built the electric E-type. Um, and so, you know, you can go all the way up to electrification um, if you want. And to, but I think for a number of businesses and then certainly ourselves, um, it's a question of how far we want to push as well. We very much value the history of, of the E-type. We value what it was. And we want to be part of retaining that. And, OK, internal combustion engines is going to become a dirty word. Um, but certainly um, for us, we believe that's integral to the car. So do you think personally that with everything going electric, that we'll be forced to get to a point? I know that there there are some companies that do electrify classic cars. But as an aficionado, does that pain you thinking that you might have to get to that point when you're restoring these cars? Um, I've got a lot of respect for, um, you know, I, lo I love the technology that comes into cars and I love electric cars. Um, when you look at the performance figures, it's it's stunning what they're achieving in electric cars. And it really is, you know, it's the way we've got to go. But I think in relation to classic cars, I like to see uh, a degree of originality retained within the car um, and, and, and a degree of kind of nods to what they were and, and, and the area in which they ran. If somebody tried to design an E-Type today, you would never get it through crash testing and, and, and all the rest of it. It would get completely torn apart and rebuilt to something probably resembling an F-Type. There are cases where then there are companies that do um, electrification of E-types and uh, that makes a lot of sense if the engine is beyond repair and bits and pieces is so far gone and effectively what you're doing is using it as a donor to build something else. And I think that makes a lot of sense and it pushes the whole industry forward. Um, I love the internal combustion and I, and I hope that we can continue to see those cars existing on the road in, into the future. And I think that they are an important part of automotive history. Yeah, it's that. It's just that sound as well, and especially when you start bringing in the V12s and oh, yeah. I hope we don't lose them too, Paul. I wanted to ask you. You can take things one step further, and you can almost get 
pretty much a car bespoke from the ground upwards. Um, and you recently, you just at Eagle, you created the lightweight. I think you mentioned it before, the lightweight GT. Yeah, the lightweight GT is the, the latest evolution, if you like, of our bespoke cars. As I mentioned earlier, we've been restoring E-types, buying and selling and restoring E-types for, for an awful long time. And back in the 90s, we were starting to upgrade them and make them reliable. Hand in hand with that comes, as Marcus says, comes safety and performance. And that's something that we grew and grew. And we always modified these cars and, and upgraded them and made them suit customers of today. The days of having to bash your fuel pump, your old SU fuel pump with a hammer. <laughs> yeah. But one thing that we've always been very, very mindful of is making sure we don't dilute the character and spirit of the original car. Um, and again, as Marcus says, you know, the thought of putting different engines in and everything else, you know, we've been asked those questions and it's something that we just wouldn't do. We are restoring these cars and that character and spirit is absolutely key. Our customers are always like bespoke. Uh, increasingly over the years, the thought of bespoke detail and bespoke bits and pieces has, seems to have become more and more popular and more and more appealing. Um, and this particular customer, who's an American customer, wanted something extra special. And we came up with our Speedster, the Eagle Speedster, which was basically, um, it, was, it was a fabulously interesting project to do. Um, but it was quite scary because, you know, we, we, what we actually did, we did a few little styling changes to the car as well. Um, so it was still a restored, um, an original restored E-Type, but we... Um, we reduced the height of the windscreen and, and we exaggerated and caricatured a few of the classic E-type details that we really liked. And we just simplified it and, and just made some changes. When we released this car to the world, we kind of ducked for cover, um, expecting the worst and thinking, oh, well, let, let's see what happens because have, have we gone too far and, and we've messed with the look of an E-type. Um, and as it happens, it was really, really well received. I think Mr. Clarkson said, uh, if this is right, it's possibly one of the most beautiful cars he's ever seen he did actually and that was a, a lovely lovely thing to hear um and so jeremy clarkson and lots of other people and even the e-type historians uh, i mean philip porter who's he lives and breathes these cars and um he absolutely and he writes books on them and he runs the e-type club and, and everything else um and even he got what we were doing he understood it uh, and he loved it it was really good so it went very very well We've made a few more in the Speedster style since then. Um, we've also done our version of the low drag coupes that I was referring to earlier. That gorgeous um, sli extra slippery coupe that Jaguar made. It it's a beautiful looking car, but even if you were to, uh, let's say, replicate that, even if you were to take a an E-Type and do exactly what Jaguar did with that, it it's a racing car. So it's naturally, it's, it's cramped, it's hot, it's uncomfortable, and it's not particularly usable on the road. And what we did with our low drag coupe was modified an original E-Type to appear like that but we made it much more user-friendly. So a true GT car, so it's more comfortable. It's got sound and heat insulation. It's got air conditioning and um, much, much less wind noise. In fact, virtually no wind noise. And um, super, super high performance. Um, it's a lot lighter and more power and everything else. So um, a proper, proper GT car. And then we did another few versions and uh, going right round to the most recent one, um, which was our lightweight GT that you uh, initially asked the question about. Uh, and basically the lightweight GT... That is our kind of version, if you like, on Jaguar's race car. It's our take on Jaguar's lightweight racing cars. It's a roadster with hard top with the vents. It looks like a Jaguar lightweight, but we've turned it into a road GT. So again, it's comfortable. So it's got you know, heat and sound insulation, as I said, and um, it's just a very, very usable car. And as well as looking 
nice you know we make sure these things are actually usable and and you can get in them and, and drive to the ends of the earth and that's what they're designed to do we have quite a good demand for them the customers really like them i'm just going i want one. <laughs> i want one i've just i literally you sold it <laughs> can i ask what the price would be on one those special special cars you know start somewhere north of half a million quid unfortunately but and it just depends on the specification and our customers love to come and get involved it's so much more than just coming and choosing uh, colors and things you know it's they get really if they want to oh, it's so unique really, yeah it is yeah and, and we absolutely that i mean that lightweight gt that you referred to that that's so bespoke to the owner who who lives in in, in atlanta and the cars over there in atlanta georgia now He's got the most incredible car collection, all the supercars you could imagine. But he's said that he's never had an experience like having it. This is a truly bespoke car because he got so far under the skin. And Marcus, I want to come back to E-Type UK. And you've got something called the Unleashed Division. And you've got a very, very special Series 3. Can you tell us what that is? And also, if you wouldn't mind, how much it is? And also, can I come and drive it? Because I've done my research and I know what you're about to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Come down and drive it. Yeah, it's really, um, you know, I think, as uh, as Paul mentioned, you know, we benefit because guys earlier have put their head over the parapet and released these bespoke cars um, and have kind of made them into acceptable forms for people to buy and to do and to undertake and um, you know we spoke a, a lot about um, upgrades and, and what we felt was really uh, we had the opportunity to essentially apply every upgrade that we could do and take it further and, and, and do something a bit more bespoke we had a customer who was really open to the idea of building something bespoke and I think you know now you can't walk into a dealership and really get truly bespoke options and truly bespoke cars and I think people are increasingly looking elsewhere to kind of fulfill their automotive ambitions and to have something that's really unique to them or unique to a very limited number of of people and that's really what we've kind of done with this um unleashed section it's a brand new it's not fully uh, launched as yet but it's it's something that we're, we're moving into and focusing on the uh on the series three and and essentially it's it pulls in everything that we can do on on a, on a series three type um downdraft fuel injection upgraded gearbox new diff reinforced strengthened bodywork lightened bodywork daylight running lights central locking electric windows remote boot releases kind of everything that you would want in essentially a, a modern car without detracting too much from what an e-type was historically and giving people that kind of reliability and and confidence in a in a car in terms of price uh, as paul mentioned you know bespoke car comes with a a bespoke price tag um and so they do cost a lot, but I'm sure you know. For you, we can we can work out a nice a nice discount um, somewhere along the along the way. Oh, I wish, I wish. Oh my goodness, I'd have to sell my house. But I tell you what, the thing I love about it is, you know, every time you see an E-Type or a car like that icon, I mean, there's very very few of them. You know, they're such head turners, and and it's just brings a smile to my face whenever I see one driving about. And I think it's so wonderful that you're modifying them but not to the point they are still those stunning cars but you know you're allowing them to be everyday cars so people are going to get to see them and I just think that that's such a joy that you're giving people the privilege to see these stunning cars out and about absolutely I think what's really important I think what everyone wants that works in this industry is they want cars to be used and 
the cars are that's what they were designed for and 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 all of us i think that work in the industry just wants to see them out about being used being enjoyed and and ultimately you know it brings people a little moment of 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 joy when they get to get out and get back to yeah true driving um you know no no real assistance no traction control and all of these kind of mod cons that are are fitted now but everyone wants to see them out on the road absolutely well, I can't wait to see them. Um, okay, so I'm coming to the end, which is really sad because I honestly could just talk to you guys forever about the E-Type. There's just one last question, really. So what is, for both of you, we'll start with Paul, favourite E-Type memory? Crikey, that, that's quite a tough question because I have been very, very lucky to have, um, you know, spent so much of my time around E-Types and, and driving E-Types that, you know, I've got a catalogue of, of fabulous memories. But I think, do you know, I think you probably touched on it earlier when you mentioned um, Jeremy Clarkson and our speedster, especially that was a project that was an important part of my life, really. It was something that I enjoyed immensely being uh, so involved in it. I'd taken it down to Devil's Dyke down near Brighton um, for some Top Gear filming and we were on the top of Devil's Dyke and Jeremy Clarkson was walking around the speedster doing a piece to camera. That's when he said those uh, words. He said, I think this is the most beautiful car that I've ever seen. And then he said, I think this is the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen. Oh, wow. And I couldn't believe my ears. I was sitting yeah. on the grass watching that. And Goosebumps. I thought, oh, my goodness, yeah. that's nice. And I was thinking, you know, if that goes out, then happy days. And, and it did get put out on the programme. So that's a pretty favourite E-type memory for me. I bet that's a good moment. And Marcus, what's yours? My favourite memories come from what we spoke about earlier. I personally really enjoy racing classic cars. I enjoy kind of being involved in that. It's something that I'm quite passionate about. And seeing the E-type sliding around in history and being driven right on the edge and kind of people wearing tin hats. And then every year kind of going to the Goodwoods and being able to be part of that is um, my memories that, um, you know, I I'll enjoy and conformly. Yeah, I mean, there is something very, very special about, especially going to Goodwood and seeing how the cars were supposed to be driven in the cars that were from that era, going completely sideways, the noise, the smell. It's something that's so incredible that only kind of petrol heads will really understand. But it is, it is something that stays with you. So we've got our last little bit, which is our one piece at a time. And so throughout all of these podcasts, we've been running a special theme called One Piece at a Time, where we ask our guests to select one prize possession that means a lot to them and bring it to the podcast. And at the end of the series, we'll have this beautiful collection. So we'll start with Marcus. What is your one piece? Yeah, so for me, my one piece is a fairly recent piece that comes from participation in, in Pebble Beach. And in 2018, we managed to get a car into Pebble Beach, albeit not an E-Type, but a Jaguar XK120. And it was myself and my father went over, participated in the Concord Elegance at Pebble Beach uh, with this car. And there is a photo as we drive down on the Tour d'Elegance heading out of uh, Pebble Beach uh, the day before, on Thursday before it. it it kicks off and uh yeah that's a possession that i will hold dearly i think a lot of classic car enthusiasts spend their life imagining getting into that kind of event and certainly you know having those memories is gonna be really nice yeah i mean that's like the holy grail to have got a car to pebble beach well done how incredible and not taking any limelight away from the e-type i'm a massive fan of the 120s because i managed to do two millimillias in them so I, I well done they're a beautiful car and paul what would your one piece be 
one piece, a bit tricky, but if I could just bring one box with a few bits in. <laughs> I got to know a guy called Philip Young back in the uh, in the 80s. Philip Young was the, the late Philip Young. He was um, the guy that started Classic Rallying, which is an enormous industry as we know it now. He he started that with the Pirelli Classic Marathon back in 1988, where I got to know him and, and I ended up entering his very first long-distance Classic Rally. That's actually where I got to know Henry, the owner of Eagle, he was competing in his E-type and, and that's where you know we got to know one another fairly well and I um, ended up working for him. That relationship with Philip Young led on to me competing in, in various other versions of his rallies, the Monte Carlo, etc. And then later on, I started to work on his rallies and I'm very lucky to have worked on an awful lot of long distance rallies over the years, all the peaking Parises around the world, the safari rallies, um, all sorts. In the course of that, uh, I've got a really, really nice collection of um, rally plates, a rally plate from every one of those events, and um, which are on the wall here behind me. That collection is is what I would bring along. It's certainly the thing, if there was a fire in this place, that's that's what I'd grab off the wall first as I ran out of the door. I love it. I've got, uh, I framed my um, car number from the Mila Milia. It's lovely. I just love that thing when you've actually been there and, and you know, it's so special. Yeah, it means a lot. They're, they're pretty on the wall and they, they mean a lot, don't they? Oh, God, they really, really do. Oh, guys, I mean, we have gone way over how long we're supposed to be um, because it's been so interesting. And I think what you do, or I know what you do is so important. And, you know, and I share your love for this incredible car. And I can only say thank you so much for taking part in the podcast. Thank you for sharing your stories. But thank you for restoring these incredible cars for us to enjoy, whether we get to look at them or maybe one day going to keep buying those lottery tickets that we might be able to afford one. But, yeah, just a massive thank you. It's just been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And to the listeners of this podcast, we would love it if you would share your own one piece at a time. You can send us pictures on Instagram or Facebook or just send it on an email. On Facebook or Instagram, just search for Chubb, that's C-H-U-B-B, collect a car. Or for email, classiccars at chubb.com or browse chubb.com forward slash the interviews. So thanks once again to Paul and Marcus for joining us today for the latest episode of the Chubb interview series, brought to you by Chubb, who share our passion for classic cars. There'll be another episode very soon. To receive every episode as it's released, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please review and spread the word. And don't forget to email us your stories about your most loved classics. I'm Jodie Kidd. Until next time. Bye. The Chubb Interviews with Jodie Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882.